Well, good morning, Antioch. <laughs> Everything about this morning feels so familiar. Um, like I blinked and woke up this morning and am doing what I've, what I've been doing for over a decade. But um, it is so good to be uh, back with you this morning. Uh, a couple quick things. Um, I miss you guys. Uh, it's, uh, it's fun when someone from Antioch shows up over in Beaverton. It happens about once a month. There, there's someone from Antioch that shows up. Uh, always makes my day. And then, uh, ironically enough, um, we have uh, Rachel and Jamie Lee showed up um, from Village uh, this morning at Antioch. So, um, so I kind of feel like we're, we're crisscrossing. Uh, in addition to that, um, because uh, the staff here is so amazing, three of the staff, Pete and Evan and Jarell, are coming over uh, in a month or so to do a bunch of different trainings over in Village. And the subject line of my email thread to the people at Village is uh, the Antioch invasion um, and getting their voices over. And then I guess later this month, you've got Insul and Paul Choi, two of the people from our staff coming over. And um, you'll realize that Paul Choi actually can preach better than I can. Um, which is a secret I'm trying to keep over in Beaverton, uh, so don't tell anyone. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't say something that I'm convicted about, that, that I, uh, I thought that I sit with a lot, um, and that's with regard to Pete Kelly. Um, I honestly believe that Pete Kelly is the archetype of the, the type of pastor that the church in America needs. Um, he is a rare, rare person. And... My way of saying it would be simply this, um, other than he always starts his sermons with great jokes and, and everything else. Uh, there are a lot of churches in America you can go to and hear about Christianity. Um, under Pete's leadership, you actually will become a better Christian. Uh, and that's something Pete taught me when he came and, and something that, that I sit with. Uh, and it's fun to see how uh, the people you work with sometimes make you a better man. You know? So... Uh, that, and I miss Kip and Linda and Evan and Jarrell and everybody else. Um, the team here at Antioch is the best-kept secret, I think, uh, certainly in Bend. Uh, everybody's too distracted with snow and ice to realize it, um, but just amazing. Uh, I want to talk about a passage of Scripture that, uh, that I've been sitting with for a little bit, and uh, we just read it a minute ago, but uh, if you want to turn there, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, and Isaiah, by the way, lived a long life. He was a prophet through many different kings, the reigns of many different kings. Uh, so you have a long, extended kind of prophetic look when you get to uh, Isaiah. He's in Jerusalem. He's kind of a, a high-class prophet, if you will. He's got access to the court. Uh, he speaks before kings. But this is towards the beginning of his prophetic ministry, and it's during the, uh, the time of King Ahaz, and in chapter 8, we read in verses 12 and 13 uh, simply this. This is God talking to Isaiah and uh, saying very clearly, do not call conspiracy everything that this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one that you are to dread. And the context of what's happening here, because there's a lot going on at the court in Jerusalem, a lot of fear, a lot of reason 
uh, for fear. And it's, it's in this time period where you've got the Assyrian uh, Empire beginning to explode. So the Assyrian Empire, uh, we can put the map on the screen, begins at the, the early time of Isaiah as this upstart, really radical, uh, very warlike kind of nation. Uh, the, Bab- um, the Babylonian um, uh, empire that it displaces later, there's another Babylonian empire. Um, but the, the one that it displaces is much more of a, of a theocracy and you've got the, the temple and you've got priests that factor in for Assyria. Not so at all. It's military. It's dictatorship. The ruler is also the general. Uh, anyone that's a man, able-bodied man, they believe had to serve in the military. And it was, it was something that came out of nowhere, much like for us what ISIS would have felt like coming out of nowhere. And it created a real stir and and they begin to spread and eventually, next slide, take over this whole um, swatch of, of land. And early on in Isaiah, before they've reached this extent, the Syrian empire has reached this extent, uh, we can go back one, uh, Jerusalem is, is kind of hanging out there and it has not been captured. It, it doesn't get captured by the Syrians actually. Later on, the Babylonians will come and ironically, If you really want to get into um, the sovereignty of God and how God works things out, the Assyrian Empire, when they come in, they want to wipe your culture out. They want to intermarry. They want to disperse you. And they basically want to make it to where you have to forget everything that once was and become a part of this new dominant culture. The Babylonians, when they come in, are different. And they allow you to, in some sense, keep your religious systems and, and... Um, just harmonize into their empire. And that's why uh, with Judah, with Jerusalem, later on, you see the exiles returning, but still in their, their Jewish kind of cultural form, whereas the northern kingdoms uh, end up very different. That's why at the time of Jesus, you have the Sumerians, which once were or came out of kind of uh, Judaism, but are now very complicated and, and worship different gods. And you have the people down around Jerusalem, some of the Jews in the north, and it's why you would travel around to get to the temple and not go through Samaria because these very different realities. So all of this is happening as we're in the prophets of the, the Old Testament, the, the northern tribes, the southern tribes. But if you're in Jerusalem, that little speck in the brown down there, and you're talking to the king, and the king has his advisors, and everyone in the town is afraid, and all of the cities around you are getting gobbled up, and you're trying to figure out what alliances, political alliances, you need to make, who's on your side, who's not on your side, who's making an alliance with somebody else to depose you, because they're just as afraid as you are. And so you've got all of this craziness going on in Jerusalem. And here Isaiah goes to King Ahaz in chapter 7, and he tells them the prophecy of how God will deliver them from the Assyrians, and then eventually God is going to judge the Assyrians, Uh, and then later on it talks about how the Babylonians will carry off those in Jerusalem. But it says in chapter 7, go ahead, Ahaz, ask God for a sign. And Ahaz goes, no, 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 I won't ask God for a sign. And God gets really impatient and irritated at Ahaz. Like, if I'm, gonna, if I'm gonna tell you to ask me for a sign, the proper response is, um, okay, God, give me a sign, right? It's a little bit of a telegraphed God comment. Um, 
Ahaz doesn't do that. God gets frustrated, but he says, I'll still tell you the sign. Um, Behold, the woman will be with child and you shall call this child Emmanuel. And we begin to get some of these Christmas verses that are familiar to us. This idea that there's going to be a child, a deliverer, that this child is going to be God coming down to be with us, to help us. And then when we get to chapter 9, chapter 9 again comes back to this idea of the child. And we get that, that phrase that you, um, he shall be called mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. And so sandwiched between these kind of messianic uh, promises that are happening as God is trying to talk to the people in Jerusalem that he's going to make sure his promise that somebody will always be on the Davidic throne, that he's going to guarantee or ensure that. In between that, he's now talking to Isaiah. And so imagine how Isaiah feels. Um, The drama that's going on in Isaiah's life, the loneliness that's going on in Isaiah's life, the the strangeness of always pushing against other people, um, always being the one to stand strong or firm with a dissonant voice or a challenging word. And God speaks to Isaiah and he says to him, do not call conspiracy everything that this people calls a conspiracy and do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And and in Isaiah here, God is using that word dread in two different ways to really reframe us from our circumstances and the way our emotions are are wired, the the fight or flight part of us as humans. And, And God is saying, take that emotion and actually relocate it onto me. Because that's where it's, it's most helpful if your sensitivities, your awareness, um, your concern is looking to me for instruction rather than looking to, um, why are those two people talking? How come that person left that meeting early? How come there's whisper? I mean, the things that you pay attention to that begin to inform your fear or your paranoia or your worry, God is saying, don't land there locate that on me. Um, I want to back up and, and talk uh, about the, the meta-narrative or the arc of the people of God in the Old Testament because I think we have to understand the big picture story to then come back and see what's going on, what God is asking Isaiah here. And this has been fun for me because we're doing the Bible in a year uh, over in at Village, um, which has been wild, a uh, wild ride going through that. And um, we... Uh, talked about Abraham selling, or not selling, but giving his wife away as a sex slave to Pharaoh. That's in the Bible. Um, we talked about Pharaoh being asked to give up his status, his wealth, his privilege, the economy of his land to look weak in front of a slave God that he didn't even know, Yahweh, and that, that somehow we can see ourselves in, in Pharaoh. Um, that when God comes to us and, and asks us of things and we're left with those same choices like the rich young ruler, that we too struggle and sometimes harden our heart or, or find ways to resist. Uh, the, the bottom line, by the way, I think I've got an illustration. There's a guy from Nike that does professional illustrations and he doodles during the sermons um, and then he puts them on his Instagram. But this is the one from Abraham and Sarah uh, and I, I thought it was really funny. I'm not going to show you the one from Pharaoh. It would be provo- uh, provocative. And some of you would be, Ken's up to it again. And I, I don't want to stir up anything for Pete. Um, 
But, uh, but the, the story with Pharaoh is simply this. Uh, as God comes in and gives a message to Pharaoh, it's this. I am God, and I'm, I'm showing you that by these mighty deeds, by these miracles. I have power over, over the Egyptian gods, what you think to be true or authoritative. Um, I am God. I, I am the Most High. Secondly, I have a sovereign will. What I want is going to happen. Uh, I'm telling you to let my people go, and guess what? I will make sure that you let my people go. So God is God. He is above all things. He has a sovereign will, meaning his ideas, his plan is going to come to fruition. And then we are, are supposed to humble ourselves um, in, in the text with Pharaoh, it's bow the knee and hum- how come you won't humble yourselves? We're to humble ourselves and join with God's will. And we do that um, through a process called faith or trust that somehow, even if it doesn't feel good or if I can't understand how it's going to work out, even if it's costly, even if I have to lay down privilege, even if I suffer, um, Jesus is a great example of this, that I'm going to align with God's sovereign will. So God is God. God has a sovereign will. We, his people, are to trust him and align through a process called faith. So this, uh, as the people come out of uh, Egypt and go into the desert, we get a lot of metaphors that God brings about that then hold true for the rest of religious history, even till today. We get a meal uh, that God gives us, uh, that, that, that God shows us in the desert. And what's the message of the meal in the desert? Is really, there's nothing else in the desert, picture it, nothing to depend on. Not even sunscreen. Um, there's nothing in the desert that you can look to or depend on except for God bringing manna. God uh, once in a while bringing quail. God making it so your sandals don't wear out. And he is the one that sets the table. He is the one that cares for us. He is the one that we depend on. Uh, we are to look to him. So God creates this metaphor that we have even till today. But the people of Israel in the desert wandering become also a metaphor for the spiritual life. Uh, they go through the Red Sea. We pass through the waters of baptism. Uh, they're, they're brought into an identity on the other side of the Red Sea. They become the people of God. We get a new name. If anyone is in Christ, behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Um, that, that God sanctifies us and, and works through us and prunes us so that he can lead us forward. And ultimately, we look for the promised land. The New Testament tells us our land of rest, our Sabbath rest, is being in Christ. Like a branch is, is in the vine, we are in Christ. Just like the people of God, we're going to be in the land where they were supposed to be. So we get this metaphor. So I want to lean into that metaphor. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. We'll hit a couple of scriptures here real quick. Exodus chapter 19. Um, If you remember the story, God talked to Moses through a burning bush. And God said, go bring my people to this mountain. And I want them to worship me here. So now that there's the journey has gone full circle. Moses has gone down, brought the people out. They're at this mountain, the mountain where God appeared to Moses. And they're supposed to get ready And then they're going to go um, visit with God, so to speak. And God is telling Moses what to say. So Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1, it says this. On the first day of the third month, 
after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out uh, from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I am God. I accomplished what I wanted. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Uh, so you see the same thing. I am God. Uh, my will is sovereign. And you are to obey. You are to walk with that. And then it will go well with you. But the whole purpose of this is that we are to be a, a light to the nations, to the glory of God. And there's an underline, Exodus 19.6, uh, that I want to show you. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, I, I told Village that the, the direct object here is God, not us. Uh, the purpose of what God is doing is, is God. Um, God is glorifying God through God's plan. It involves us, but God is the direct object. Uh, I was then, you can show the next picture, corrected by a homeschool mom. Now, you know that I homeschooled some of my kids, so it's not meant to be a, a, but this is a homeschool mom that came up to me afterwards and was like, uh, God's not the direct object of the sentence. Uh, she tried to explain it to me. I don't know what VL is, but I'm pretty sure S is the subject, and the PN is predicate nominative. It's the first time I've ever said that in a sermon. Uh, and I don't, know what a predicate, I don't know what a predicate nominative is. And then there's the for me down there. And what she basically said to me is, this little diagram I did proves your point even more. And that was all I needed to hear. And I said, can I take a picture? <laughs> this is homeschool, verified and approved. Um, so now I, I've decided I need to say not that God is the direct object, but God is the theological object of what he's saying here. Um, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If I flip quickly to 1 Peter, 1 Peter says this in one of the, the most meaty passages of quoting uh, the scriptures in scripture. Peter says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Uh, it then says, But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. Uh, two comments here. The first one is the audience that God was talking to was the Israelites, a, a, a group that he was calling out that they might reflect his glory to the nations. Peter is writing to what audience in First Peter? Does anyone know who the audience of this letter is? 
it's the, the churches or the Christians that have come about through Paul's ministry through uh, Greece, Macedonia, uh, basically that whole area. And, and Peter is writing as a pastor, as an apostle, to encourage them. They are Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. And he is using the Old Testament and saying, you now, you, all of you have been grafted in. All of you now are a part of this royal priesthood, this holy nation. Once you were not a people of God, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy, and you are to declare the praises of him who's called you out of darkness. And it's this crazy thing that he's saying, but the ultimate purpose here is uh, that we are or we exist to be a light to the nations to the glory of God. Um, That's who we're supposed to be, a light to the nations, to the glory of God. And this is beginning now as God is commissioning the Israelites in front of Mount Sinai. Um, Ironically, though, as the, the people were supposed to come and be commissioned as priests, the, the mountain is so scary and the idea of God or coming close to God is so scary that the people shrink back and they say, Moses, why don't you stand between us and God? You do this, Moses. You be the priest. We are afraid. We don't want to get close. And it was one of the times that they said no to God. God is God. God has a will. We're supposed to walk by faith. This is one of the times the Israelites say, no, we don't want to do it that way. And they shrink back. They were supposed to draw near and to be close to God so that they could reflect God to the world. And instead they said, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel safe. We'd rather be distanced from God and have God do his plan a different way. Does that make sense? Feels very human, doesn't it? Um, The rich young ruler, here's a chance for you to be near and to step close and be a part of what God is doing. And it's too easy to go, you know what? I want to step back. I'll pass. I'd rather somebody else do it because that doesn't feel very comfortable or very safe. If we go a little bit over in... Uh, into Numbers, Numbers chapter 14. I'm sorry, we'll do a quick stop in Exodus 34.6. Exodus 34.6, it's on the screen. Um, It's a famous verse, so if you like famous verses, write it down. But this verse is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. So this is the most quoted verse by Scripture itself, and it's God's declaration of who he is. And he's saying to Moses, uh, when, when the whole golden calf thing happens, um, he's declaring to Moses who he is. He puts him in the cleft of the rock. He passes by and he names himself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And then he, he says, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God is saying what he is like, what his nature is like. He's revealing himself to Moses, even in the midst of this disobedience that happened uh, with the Israelites. So in the face of golden calf idol worshipers, uh, what's symbolic about the golden calf, by the way? It's, it's uh, paying homage to an Egyptian god. So the whole battle God was having with Pharaoh to say, I am supreme. As soon as the Israelites get out, and by the way, where did they get the gold from? You ever wondered how they made a golden calf, a bunch of slave people in the desert? Because when they left, God had so thoroughly done his job 
that the slaves were uh, able to ask the masters for their wealth or their possessions, and they took gold and jewelry with them into the desert. And as soon as they were afraid, what happens? They begin going, we haven't heard from God in a while. Um, maybe if we take this gold, melt it down, and worship a golden calf, one of the many Egyptian gods, maybe one of those gods will come back and help us. And in the midst of this happening, God reveals himself to Moses as being slow to anger and compassionate and gracious, that he abounds in love and faithfulness, yet at the same time he'll punish sin. So this is a part of God revealing himself as the Israelites, test by test, do the same thing that Pharaoh did. They begin to harden their hearts against God. The final straw is in Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 14. Uh, Moses is talking to God uh, once again. This is after the, the spies have been sent into the land, the land God is supposed to give to the Israelites. They come back. Two of the spies love it. God is indeed good. He has prepared the way. This is the right land. Let us go now and take it. And 10 of those spies uh, come and they go, this doesn't look good. It doesn't look comfortable. It doesn't feel safe. Uh, why have we come here? Did God just bring us into the desert to die? And the people rebel. Um, a whole genera uh, generation of the older people rebel. And so God is having a conversation with Moses. And Moses quotes here the most quoted verse in Scripture. And he says this to God. You, God, the Lord, is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. But in, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. God, you've been forgiving these people. By the way, please just forgive them again. Quick side note. Uh, if you're like me, you hit... Uh, places in scripture that you don't quite understand. You ever hit those? You're like, what, is, what does that mean? Um, it feels a little strange. One of those has always been when God seems to change his mind. Uh, you ever seen that in the Old Testament? God's gonna wipe everyone out and Moses says, uh, God, please don't do that. Would you forgive them? And God says, okay, I'll forgive them. And you begin to go, is God a fickle God? Is he just super uh, high-charged emotion God? Is he, what's really going on here? Um, in this whole study, I came to a, a new way of understanding that. God is so thoroughly trying to, to teach us humility. Um, Pharaoh, just bow the knee and humble yourself. Israelites, just look to me, trust me, and humble yourself. Don't think you know better than I do. All the way to Jesus, Jesus' whole life, Philippians chapter 2, is demonstrating that yet he was um, with God and like God, that he humbled himself at every turn. It is the nature of God to demonstrate to us how to be fully human. And being fully human means being in full obedience through humility. So I think what's going on here is God says the obvious, I have the right to kill these people. And Moses says, but would you forgive them? And God says, sure. So quickly, he says, sure, because he's modeling to Moses what forgiveness is. He's modeling to Moses what grace is. Of course your enemy deserves to be hated and gossiped about and, and undermined. And you know what I'm saying? Of course they deserve it. Forgive them anyways. Of course they don't deserve your grace, but do it anyways. I think God 
like Jesus later on in the New Testament, is giving us a picture of the truth and the justice and then the willingness to actually say there's a different way. It's this way. And so Moses declares back to God who he is and says, would you now forgive these people? And then the Lord replies, I have forgiven them. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory in the signs that I performed in Egypt uh, and in the wilderness, um, but who disobeyed me and tested me these ten times, not one of them will ever see the land that I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land that he went to and his descendants will inherit it. What's going on here? God is saying, don't you remember when I called you to be a kingdom of priests, that you would um, be a light to the nations for the glory of God? I told you that I was God and that I had demonstrated this with power, that I had a sovereign will and you were to align with it. Do you not realize, did you not see that I demonstrated my power? Did you not know that I asked you to do what my will was? Yet you tested me. And, and you have not been willing to follow. You've tested me these ten times. So now, after the tenth one, I'm actually going to punish you. What's symbolic about the ten times? How many plagues were there? In Egypt. God is so um, overwhelmingly simple in how he communicates to his people. Ten plagues uh, for, for Pharaoh that connect to the gods of Egypt. Um, the sun god Ra and the light turns to darkness. The power that is symbolic in the Nile River and it turns to blood and becomes unusable, right? That, that God does these 10 things to accomplish his will. And when, when Pharaoh is not willing to let go after the 10 times, God kills him and all the Egyptians that chase the Israelites into the Red Sea, remember? And now the Israelites that God has been loving and carrying out of Egypt do the exact same thing that Pharaoh did. We are more like Pharaoh than we realize. They do the exact same thing, but instead of killing them, God says, I love them. I abound in forgiveness, but they're not going to see the blessing. The glory that was going to be revealed that they were going to be able to be a part of, they're not actually going to get to see that. But of course I forgive them. Of course I love them. They're going to walk through the desert and their sandals will not wear out. They're going to have the food that they need. Uh, they're going to have the quail when they really need the meat. Uh, I will love them. The majority of them will die in old age. And then I'm going to continue my work with a different generation. So God still loves. He's still who he, uh, who he is. But at this point, he said, you've hardened your heart to me too many times for me to allow you to still be in the plan that's going to have this great, uh, beautiful kind of um, final... There's a word I'm trying not to use. Um, anyways. Um, so what's really going on here? They grumbled that God would bring them out to kill them, but he actually loves them. We're in Isaiah, and when we're looking at Isaiah... God is now talking to the prophet and saying, I am the God who works power. I have sent you with this message to be strong and to make my will known, my sovereign will, 
Now, as you live through the emotions of your everyday, as you're struggling to obey and figure out what that looks like, here's what I want to say to you, Isaiah. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one that you are to dread. Um, last year for me has been really hard. Uh, I did not like the search committee process uh, that was talking to me about leaving a church that I had no intention of leaving. Um, I didn't like being drilled into when I didn't ask for being drilled into. Um, I didn't like the stress of moving and trying to figure out how to relocate in Beaverton. Um, I didn't like the idea of um, rain or, or, uh, or clouds. Uh, I, I didn't, it wasn't a fun process on a, a lot of different levels, trying to work with my kids to try and get them reestablished. And even now that I hear it takes two to five years to replace your safe people, um, not just acquaintances, but those people that are safe for you. Uh, I walked uh, a week before I actually started into a, a, a massive embe uh, embezzlement scandal by a former employee that took up most of the summer uh, with highly confidential and, and, and highly investigative things to try and get to the bottom of what that whole thing was, and then taking long nights and staying for after meetings to try and navigate the church through that. And then we went right from that into transitioning, uh, the transitioning out of a worship pastor that had, that had been there 31 years and, and navigating that. And, and I got to a certain point with, with just kind of this ongoing, almost year long of, of just trying to get through it. I was talking to someone with a counseling background uh, and this person, psychologist, said to me, hypervigilance, that's what, that's what you've got going on. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, hypervigilance. Uh, we're all vigilant to a certain degree. We have our radar up. We see certain things. We, we register those things, and we try and figure out what's meant by that. But it's a normal level thing. When you send people into combat zones, uh, constant stress, uh, unrelenting kind of uh, adrenaline, uh, where there are all these things and, and you begin to train yourself to try to anticipate all the things. He goes, you get to a state where your brain is stuck in hypervigilance. It's one of the first things we look for uh, with people that have PTSD. And I was like, the minute he said hypervigilance, I was like, I, that's exactly what's going on in my brain. Like I am, I'm kind of stuck with what is the next thing, what is the next thing. Tamara would look at me and why are you, why are you huffing and puffing and stomping around the house like that? Don't know, <laughs> but, but I'm ready for the next thing, you know? And uh, it was so helpful for me, but it, it began to make me think how this is such a part of our life in, in the culture we live in now, which is just so supercharged with everything. Um, do you know that Oregon is the worst state out of 50 states for mental health? Uh, there's a mental health magazine that's literally called Mental Health, and we rank the last in, in all 50 states in terms of mental health. Uh, there was a survey done of our high school girls, girls and boys, uh, but of our high school group just a few weeks ago, and 80% uh, of the girls registered as mild to severe depression uh, on this, this little study. And... I'm beginning to think and to realize that 
that there's something really going on here, right? That, that Jerusalem was the last bastion of, of what was happening with, with Judah. It's the last kind of stronghold, but it's being threatened. What is the last stronghold for us as people? It's our minds. It's our sleep. It's our joy. It's our close friendships. Uh, it's our, our sense of security in our job or financially. And that when we get to the, the place where those things are being pushed in on, and we begin to know, like, is that depression or is that just rain? Um, uh, you, you know what I mean? Like, and you begin to look at these things and go, what's going on? And, and that's the moment when you need to realize that Isaiah 7, God is saying, ask me for a sign because I will come down and meet you there. And even if you don't ask for that sign, I'll still tell you the sign. And then I'm going to give you the message that don't call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. Don't listen to those voices. Don't get caught up in those games. Somehow take the emotion, the hypervigilance, the fear, the dread, whatever it is, the insecurities, and you relocate that onto me. And you look to me because I am God, I have a sovereign will, and I know it's difficult, but if you align with that, even if it's trusting me, even if you're afraid of what it's going to cost you in terms of suffering or laying down power or privilege or looking weak or just not knowing what tomorrow will look like, you still do it. Trust me because I will show you my glory. I will make my plans come to fruition for you. Do not walk away. Do not keep hardening your heart because you're going to miss out on some of the blessings that I want to bring into your life. And he pleads, I think, with Isaiah here. And so I just want to close by kind of recapping this and we can put the words on the screen. Um, but this is what it comes down to, uh, to for me that the most important thing for us to remember is to depend on God. The, uh, we're not supposed to call conspiracy what they, whoever they are, call conspiracy. We're a nation of priests. We're meant to stand close. We are a holy nation, just like Israel was being formed into a holy nation. God is wanting us to come close to him, even though there's fear of what that might mean for, for control of our life. But when we come close, we become the kinds of people that can lead worship for the world, that can pastor other people, that can mediate somehow between what, what's going on out there in secular society and God who has a plan for all this, that when we come close, we now stand as priests between these two things. Uh, at Village, I said last week, that's why women pastors, that debate for hundreds of years, I think is absolutely ridiculous. And I think it has damaged so many women over the years that we haven't created space that is equal where they can use their gifts because God is bringing them into this space, not just men to mediate on behalf of women what God is doing in the world. Um, I get asked why I talk about justice all the time at Village. And I've begun to simply say this, uh, Galatians chapter 3, that whether you are Jew or Gentile, a slave or a free person, male or female, we were, we we're all one in Christ. So why do I talk about um, multicultural ministry or multi-ethnic church stuff? Because whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, we're one in Christ. It exists out there. 
Um, if we're doing evangelism right, we're going to have people that don't think or look like us showing up in our churches. Multi-ethnic or multicultural is a necessary outworking of faithful obedience. Not only that, but it's a beautiful part of the mosaic that helps us hear and see what we wouldn't otherwise know. Why do I always talk about justice? Because there's neither slave nor free. We are one in Christ. So we have to talk about, uh, about the way that it ought to be, not the way it's come to be in society, but how God wants it to be, not because we're going to create laws that, that um, maneuver people around unfairly, but because the people of God will treat others better than themselves and voluntarily walk forward and say, I want to be one with my fellow brothers and sisters. How do we help each other out. And, and then why do I care about gender so much these days? Because there's neither male nor female. We are one in Christ. Um, oneness in Christ is a theological reality. It's because of Jesus dying on the cross and us being adopted in that makes us one in Christ. Unity is very different. Um, unity is something that we actually have to work toward. We exist as one in Christ theologically. Unity is something we have to walk toward or fight for, overlooking differences, asking forgiveness, uh, giving forgiveness, and we fight for it um, because it's supposed to be there. So Jesus knew this. He didn't pray for oneness when he, when he was going to die. Remember John 17, Jesus is praying. Uh, we, we call it high priestly prayer, but Jesus is praying for the church, and he doesn't pray that, that we would have the oneness that we're going to have in Christ. He prays that in that, that we would experience it, that we would come to know it because we work towards unity. God, would you help them? God, would you help establish that? God, would you give them the ability that they might experience the closeness that we have? Because it's going to be difficult for people to arrive at that place. So when we're talking about the priesthood of believers, we're talking about standing close. We're talking about you and me. We're talking about all of us coming all the way to the foot of that mountain and saying, yes, God, make your will known in my life. I will walk by faith and I will mediate and I will lead others into a full understanding of you. I will lead worship for this world. We are meant to be signs and symbols. So if I read the rest of Isaiah 8, do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. And it continues on because God will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare, and many of them will stumble, and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instructions among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. And then it concludes in verse 18. Here I am, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. So wrapping it all together, uh, Exodus 19, we're a kingdom of priests. First um, Peter chapter two, we are a kingdom of priests because Jesus has come and he's a stone, he's a rock of offense, but to those who believe he's the cornerstone and we're being built brick like brick into that, that holy dwelling. We come back to Isaiah where God has encouraged Isaiah to not get caught up into the fear or the hypervigilance. And here's where Peter was quoting from. Isn't that beautiful? Peter was grabbing his words on Jesus right from this verse. And when it comes down to the end, you've got Isaiah declaring, um, 
that all that this is going on uh, from God and calling him, that, that he and his children are going to be signs and symbols, that they are going to walk by faith to such a high degree, that they are going to plant themselves as priests, that they're going to be a light to the nations, to the glory of God. We are going to be signs and symbols for other people to see. So on this list, we are meant to stand close. We're meant to be signs and symbols. We're meant to be witnesses. Um, that's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for my family. It's my prayer for you, Antioch, that you would understand that you're to stand close, that God has called you into that awesome and scary place, but there's no better place to be. And that what we do each week when we come down and we receive what has been offered to us at the Lord's table, it is a reminder that our God is gracious. It is a reminder that our God forgives. It's a reminder that even if we're walking around in the desert, that God sets the table for us. Even if you are the one that is dealing with the mental challenges, if everything is being pressed on, uh, in on in your life and you, you don't feel like there's anywhere to look, anywhere to go, you are in the desert, God sets the table, God provides, God loves, and we pattern this week after week as we come down because we become the stories we tell. We become the stories we tell. And as we walk, we are playing that narrative over again in our life so that we can once again remember how to align with a God whose sovereign will is made manifest and calls us into obedience. Father, we do pray um, that we would be living the right stories, that we would be signs and symbols, that we would be witnesses, that we would be able to, even if we're scared, we'd be able to step close, that we'd be able to stand near. The invitation that you've given us to be so close to you in your throne room and, and going boldly before you, but that comes with this awesome responsibility of, of choosing to live by faith, having a citizen, uh, citizenship that's in heaven, being about something totally different than what the world's about. Father, would you give us just a shred more of faith? We believe, help our unbelief. We come to this table as sinners, as those who make mistakes, as those who are struggling. Renew our sense of grace. Remind us of your love again this morning as we do this as a community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.